Connected Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hey folks, Lizette here, she, Each week we bring you our take on the things happening in the world from the perspective of two BIPOC parents of transgender kids. Lisette, this is episode 23. We are doing Jordan numbers. Get it? Michael Jordan was number 23 yes. for the he, he put up numbers. We're putting up these podcast episodes like we're scoring ports. Like, Mike, like, Lisa, are you with me? Are you- I am with you. Okay. I heard a rumor. I'll have to tell you about it later. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I heard a rumor that, like, J- Jordan wants to leave Nike because of their support of trans people. Hold on. Stop. 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 If that is true, I can't be putting up Michael Jordan numbers well actually that's why i was like i gotta tell him i don't know if it's true i'm excited for today's show because last week we interviewed one of my good friends and today's guest is one of yours that's right he said today we're going to be interviewing my brother from another mother ugo azenquel dr ugo azenquel so once again welcome to the show let's get started we said I just finished Light from Uncommon Stars. How friggin' good was that book? All the twists and turns, the combination of the religious with the extraterrestrial, with the metaphysical. This book was extremely well done. I'm sad that it's over. I'm sad that it's over too. I did hear that she's writing another book and it just was so good. And I want to go back into that world all over again. I hope it's true that she's writing another book another part of the series. I literally went back to Amazon. Then I looked up the author. Then I looked up LGBTQ science fiction books because I was trying to see if she had any other titles. And I was like, man, and I don't just want to be like picking random books because all books are not created equal. All authors are not exceptional writers. And so I was just like, all right, I have to tell Lisa because maybe she has another book that can just scratch that itch that I have now. Or maybe I'll just go back to reading the other books that I had put on pause waiting for this one to be done. But oh my goodness, that was really, it was just like, it was like potato chips. Like once you picked it up, you couldn't put it down. And then before you know it, the bag is gone and you've eaten them all. It's so good. And the characters were so well done. And yeah, I'm with you. That unresolved trauma. I was like, yes. oh, I want to go deeper. I want to I want to see resolution. All the things. It had all the things. So if you have not picked up this book, if you don't know what we're talking about, the book is called Light from Uncommon Stars. We said, Please pronounce the author's name. Oh my gosh, you're asking me to say names I can never pronounce anyone's names. I'm going to try it. I'm going to say okay. the author is Rika Aoki. Yes, you said it perfectly. All right, well, good. So pick up Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. You will not be disappointed. And for parents out there who are listening, who are looking for good books for your trans or non-binary kid, this is a good one. It's got some adult themes, so I would say 16 plus, but if you got a precocious kid who understands this world, this book will not disappoint. It was so good. We said, in two weeks, I've got the New Fest LGBTQ Film Festival in New York, and the week after that, 
I'll be at the Montclair Film Festival for the screening of The Deads. Not only are we screening the film as part of both of these film festivals, um, short screenings, but Peter Betts and I, another one of the dads in the film, are going to be on a Q&A panel afterwards with the director, Lucina Fisher. It's going to be Steven. the bomb. I'm so excited, Stephen. Are y'all going to film it and post it online? Are we going to be able to see it? Is it going to get streamed? So I don't think it's going to be streamed. I mean, like most film festivals don't typically stream what they're doing, but I will have my intrepid iPhone with me and I will capture as many clips as I can of the events and post them to the social media so that folks can vicariously experience whatever it is that we do. I'm super excited for the Montclair Film Festival, especially because the kids were from Montclair and ever since Chanel passed, we have not been back to Montclair. So it's going to be somewhat of a bittersweet reunion, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be good. That's so exciting. I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm so excited to see all the things that are going to happen with the dads. Yes. And, and as you know, and maybe everybody doesn't know, but you know, this is kind of the March to release date. Even though Netflix hasn't formally announced the release date, we know that these are part of the October ramp up for what may be, fingers crossed, a November release of the dads. Now, if I if I was a betting man and I only gamble on the lottery, like <laughs> mega millions and that kind of stuff. So I'm not really a gambler and or a bettor. However, if I were a gambling man, I would say it's probably going to come out in November just because that's the, you know, that's the month when you got Transgender uh, Day of Remembrance. You have all those like very specific things. So fingers crossed my Nostradamian powers are going to be um, rewarded with uh, a release of the dad sometime soon. Like it's, it's really like it's killing me. <laughs> it has to come out already. I know. It has to come out already. Oh my gosh. I know. I keep like making mistakes too. I'm like, when is it coming out? I'm going to post. And then I'm like, I can't post anything. Right. So we're waiting for Lucina to give us the, the green light and I guess Netflix to give her the green light, but whatever. As soon as we get it, it's on and popping. But it's on there. People can go like it. Yes. Put it in their reminder. Yes. I, I, I have added it to my list, my my like watch list or whatever it is. Because I mean, when it's not officially available to watch, I don't know what you're doing with it. You're, you're favoring. You just put it in your queue. You just stick it in there. Okay, so it's in my queue. And then you set a reminder. It's in my queue. It's got a reminder <laughs> set. It's happening set, okay? It's okay, happening. I'm just All telling right, for the listeners. What's going on with you? Um, Daniel and I have like a busy month. I'm going to see you in two weeks which is exciting, right? We're going to the big HRC dinner. Yes. Um, and then Daniel and I are doing a panel for the Laramie Project, which is the play about Matthew Shepard. Nice. Um, and Judy and Dennis are going to be here, so we're going to be on a panel with them. Nice. And then Daniel and I are doing two other panels. And Daniel has a panel this weekend about access to care and the importance of access to care for uh, one of the trans-led conferences. I can't remember the name. So that's not helpful on this. Yeah. So we're just like busy. And then Daniel, you remember Lewis. He was on a previous episode. Yes. Uh, Reverend Lewis tapped Daniel to do the drums at church on Sundays. So we've been doing that. And so nice. Daniel's been doing the drums at service. And 
I'm not a religious person, but I'm there. I'm hey, there in support. That's what we do. We support our chillings. <laughs> and and so it's been really nice. And it's always nice connecting with folks. And allergy season in Arizona is October, like real bad. And so it's just, you know, not like under the weather with my allergies. It's crazy. I'm going to tell you something. Like two weeks ago, I was like a snotty nosed little kid with my nose constantly running. And I couldn't, for the life of me, understand what was happening. It wasn't pollen season. It wasn't hay fever season. But for some reason, I was just this constantly mucus nosed fool. And then last week, Nicole got the same thing. Whatever it was, was going around. She was just stuffy head runny nose, postnatal drip, just all of the hot messes, the both of us. And now you're telling me that October is allergy season in Arizona and maybe it was allergy season in New Jersey. We didn't know because it was just like, it came out of the blue and just messed us both up. Yeah. When I'm having like, I mean, look, I have sign, I, like I have like the sinus stuff that everybody deals with. Like I'm allergic to mesquite and, and palo verde, which is like everywhere. For me, it's like watery eyes. And I swear to God, on Saturday, I look like I had lopsided eyes because like one eye was like burning and like <laughs> puffy and dropping tears. And the other one was just surviving. And so that's when I knew it was allergies because you just can't like it just I was a mess in the face. It wasn't cute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be laughing. No, it was funny. I tried, I'm going to send you a selfie I took because I was like, oh I'm going to try to take a selfie and you can just see my eyes like crooked. But you so. know what? I, I, I may have some, some help for you because <laughs> our guest today is a doctor, is an actual medical doctor who may be able to give you some little tips on the side for how to handle puffy face foolishness. <laughs> How do I make my tears stop falling out of my face? No, I'll have to ask Ugo when we're not in the interview. But my face was crazy. My eyes were like, I'm going to have to show you. Perfect. You'll just be like, what is wrong with you? Exactly. All right, all right, all right, all right. Enough about your medical ailments. Let's <laughs> all right, so Olivia Hill was officially sworn in as Tennessee's first openly transgender elected official ever in the state's history. I am extremely proud of the folks in Tennessee who cast their ballots for her, and I think it's a sign of things to come, for real. I mean, it's just like such a contradiction, right? Like they they elect a transgender official, and yet access to care is banned. And so it's it's like progress, necessary progress, people like voicing their beliefs at the ballot box and saying that they're tired of these attacks on trans people. And yet so many people are suffering in Tennessee right now because they've lost care. So it's just, a, it's like, I'm happy and sad for Tennessee all at the same time. Yeah. It's hard to reconcile those very disparate things that are happening. But again, I think it is a sign of things to come, which is specifically that more LGBTQ plus people are running for public office and getting elected because it's only when people that look like you, think like you, have the same interests as you are in office that you can start moving the needle 
and creating some of this positive change that is necessary for people to have the same rights and benefits, medically and otherwise, as everyone else. And that won't yeah. happen unless and until we have more people who are thinking about representing all of their constituents and not just their cisgender ones. Absolutely. What else do we got? So I just read that a journalist, an LGBTQ advocate, Josh Kruger, was shot and killed at his home in Philly yesterday. Now, Kruger used his platform to advocate for the most vulnerable people in his community, particularly homeless people, those living with addiction, and the LGBTQ plus community. And his death is really a serious blow to that community, and especially the people whose causes he championed. I read this too and it's so devastating and it's so scary because they don't have any information on who could have done this and so it's such a loss much like our elected officials we need journalists telling stories accurately representation matters and his loss will be felt in within communities it's so devastating i was so sad when i saw that in the news today yeah it's one of those things where an individual who has a passion for the work that he does, because Josh was not a journalist. He was an activist. He was an yeah. advocate who came to journalism. He took his passion for the communities that he worked with, the, 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 the people suffering from addiction, the unhoused, LGBTQ plus people, and he took that passion for serving that community and he started writing about it. And, and that journalism, he was an award-winning journalist for the work that he was doing in those communities. And now his voice is gone. It, it, it is a tragedy and it is very scary. Yeah. It's scary because you don't want to think that, you know, I was just listening to the news um, on my drive back from Daniel. And obviously we know Kevin McCarthy was just ousted, but they went on to talk about Trump and some of the things he, you know, he just got in trouble for um, naming uh, the clerk in his trial by name. And, you know, they were talking about how we are living in a violent time where people will go to your home and attack you. And so you read stories like this and the fact that there's no information and it wasn't a break in, it wasn't these things like, it just feels so scary. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that Josh Kruger's family is okay and sending them our prayers and just hoping that everyone in, you know, in his life are safe. It's just so devastating. It really is. And it you, you brought up two interesting things. Number one, Kevin McCarthy is out as Speaker of the House. So can we take a brief moment to pour a little out for the former mm -hmm. Speaker? <laughs> the speaker is what happens when you speak out of both sides of your neck. Make yep. a deal with the devil and he's going to get his just dues. As McCarthy yep. found out, he clearly did not know the fuck around, find out algorithm because <laughs> he stayed fucking around and finally found out. And what's, what's the most poetic piece of this is that he was ousted by Matt Gates, <laughs> who was like adamant that he was going to get McCarthy out because he sided with the Democrats in the whole spending bill thing. How did he get McCarthy out? 208 Democratic votes. <laughs> <laughs> the Democrats were like, well, don't tell you. <laughs> so the dude was mad that McCarthy cut a deal with the Democrats and to get 
McCarthy out, he cut a deal with the Democrats. Like, talk about the ironic hypocrisy of these people. Like, they're shameless in the way they go about getting shit done. It's just, it's like a barrel of monkeys. I mean, we also got to talk about how, like, Matt Gates is still on trial for, like, assault. Come on. Trafficking. Like, at this juncture, which of these Republicans is without some sort of blemish to themselves, to their character, to their behavior, to their backgrounds. It's like George Santos, freaking Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, freaking Paul Gosar. Like there's so many people in the Republican Party, elected officials that have some sort of either their unindicted co-conspirator number. <laughs> no, like they're criminals. Like, it's not even a blemish. It's not like, whoops, made a mistake. Like, legit, on trial for, like, criminal, yeah. criminal shit. Yeah. Like, bad shit. Yeah. And again, you know that we're living in, like, these really Orwellian times when the people engaging in the most vociferous clamoring for justice and you know look at these drain the swamp are the people engaging in the most nefarious criminal behavior it's oh, crazy wow. the cognitive dissonance that exists in the republican party it's crazy i mean i made my mom grumpy the other day because i was like god i wish the rapture really would come and take all these crazy people and leave us alone <laughs> just flatten the earth and just take, take them humans. Let the aliens come and beam them up. It's wild. So, remember we were talking about Gavin Newsom and how he was just pissing us off because he vetoed the trans-affirming bills in the state? Well, this fool just went and did a good thing in appointing LaFonza Butler to serve out the balance of Dianne Feinstein's term in the Senate. His appointment makes her the first open Black lesbian to represent the state of California in the Senate. And even though he's on the naughty list, he he did good. I'm just gonna... That's what, that's what I've been doing that's all, all day. That's all you all got. Posts. I'm like, share. So happy. Congratulations. It's no, good. Again, good. representation matters. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's huge. Like, everyone was concerned about who's gonna appoint. But in the end, I think he did something truly powerful. So we're, we're still looking at you side-eyed, Newsom, but you did good. You did good. Is that, there's always so much more we can talk about, but let's not leave our guests waiting. Sounds good, Stephen. I'm so excited for our guest today. Hugo Ozenquel, MD, is Chief of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai, Queens, and Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's the Emergency Medicine System Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. In addition to direct patient care, his clinical interests include emergency medicine management systems, diversity, equity in medicine, and healthcare information technology. He is passionate about optimizing the delivery of care to acutely ill patients and improving the experience of patients in the emergency room. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Ugo Azempo to the show. Welcome to our show, Ugo. It's so nice for you to join us today. Thank you for having me. So quick backstory for folks. This is actually the second time you've been on the show. 
faded episode number five. Something failed on Zoom and we lost the entire recording of you. And it's taken us 18 episodes to get you back. So welcome back once again. Thank you. Hopefully we worked out the AV issues. I hope so too. So Stephen tells me that you are an ER doctor. For almost as long as you've been practicing medicine, what is it that draws you to the emergency medicine versus other practice areas? Uh, so thank you, Liz, for that question. Yeah, so emergency medicine is something that, you know, you work with patients at, you know, we often say high pace, fast pace. You get to see a lot of different, you know, pathologies from different disciplines. And so you sort of get to master how you handle patients at their worst and you try to stabilize them. Once you stabilize them, then you can ultimately admit them to the hospital or transfer them out. So you get to sort of see a different skill sets all the time and multiple procedures. So there's something that's very exciting for me. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. And so I guess I'm going to be doing this till another 20 years or so. So we'll see. So when I was doing my research on you, because even though I've known you for over 30 years, I don't really know, know what it is that you do. I learned that you were named the first chair of the American College of Emergency Physicians Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Can you talk about that a little? Uh, yes, yes. I'm the inaugural chair for the uh, sort of ASAP, American College of Emergency Physicians Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. And this is, has been a process in the making now for several years. We started up as a task force on DEI. I subsequently formed a section on diversity, inclusion, and health equity, and now we are at a committee level. And the premise of the committee is now to have an organized approach to sort of do working on anything related to health equity with the college. And so not only workforce, but emergency medicine practice, advocacy, and so working with a lot of talent across the nation to make sure that we meet our objectives. So there's something very excited. And I'm currently in Philadelphia this weekend because we have an American College of Emergency Physicians conference in Philadelphia. So I'm in the city of brotherly love and working very tirelessly to make sure that we continue to further our missions in this space. One of the challenges that BIPOC parents of trans and non-binary kids find is that doctors do not look like them. Like they don't look like our families. They're not representative of our culture. What does the medicine profession, especially in the gender affirming care space, look like from your perspective? Yeah, so you bring up a great point. I mean, that's one of the things that we're working for, and not only in the college, but really just anyone who does equity is trying to understand those are demographics of our professionals, our working medical professionals sort of relate to what our patients look like. Unfortunately, that is, I mean, you look at AMC, their data, on the workforce, uh, we have ways to go. Uh, we know that among historically marginalized communities, including Black or African-Americans or even Hispanic, and on to Asian-Americans, that the numbers that we see among the workforce does not mimic what the population or what the U.S. Census population says it is. So there's underrepresentation, that's for sure. And with regards to gender-affirming care, transgender, gender-diverse communities, it's even worse. Um, we, we know that you know, if we look at the proportion of LGBTQ2 patients in the population, it's about 3.5%, but even those for transgender, it's 0.2% we're talking about. And amongst medical professionals, that number is low. We never really track that number. So certain uh, portions of their college, and at least amongst emergency physicians, we're starting to ask the questions to see how many of our members are actually in that category. But I will tell you, it is a very low number. Yes. Ugo, we've talked about the visit to a mediclinic with Hobbs, where staff repeatedly misgendered him, 
and how frustrating that experience was for both he and I. A lot of trans and non-binary people report that they avoid the emergency room in places like that because it's often not an affirming place. Like Hobbes, they're often misgendered and the overall experience is a negative one. What if anything is being done to address the needs of trans and non-binary people in emergency room settings? The numbers of the population who identify as gender diverse are quite low. And so even amongst medical professionals, there's not the awareness of what this community is or how to address their care. So what are we doing? We're trying to increase this awareness by way of education. So there are professional organizations who are creating webinars on how do you treat patients who come from these gender diverse backgrounds and it's so it's a, you know it's going to be a way a ways to go because we know that it's this is really much of its infancy, and creating that awareness is going to take some time. We really have to look at medical education. So our graduate medical education, how do we train our medical students and ultimately our residents, and how do we build that into the curriculum? Is it a one-time workshop or is this a longitudinal curriculum? Is what we're looking for. I believe that the latter, a longitudinal curriculum, is what's necessary, and so it's going to take time for the house of medicine to start with that process. But the good news is that that process is starting. So there are certain organizations who are looking at this, including the AMC, which is responsible for largely for training of medical students, and including the ACGME, which is really responsible for medical education of our residents. And so we know that those organizations are working hard to sort of great, create their awareness such that we can address this. And hopefully sometime in the future, your son, um, when uh, he gets to the emergency department, that it will be some awareness and some of the practitioners will be more comfortable addressing his needs. The Academy for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Medicine published a deck on caring for the transgender patient in the emergency department, which featured two of your colleagues at Mount Sinai, McKinney Chisholm Straker and Paul Krieger. Is the care of transgender patients something that is becoming a standard in healthcare? Yes. So as I mentioned before, we are working on creating an awareness. And that deck that you saw that Dr. Krieger and Dr. Chisholm Straker put out there is really part of the effort, right? So we want to be able to educate health professionals on how to care for the transgender community. And so we need webinars. We need sort of information or content like that. And so that's a step in the right direction, but it is far and few between. We really need to make sure that uh, our medical education as a whole is being transformed too. So some health systems have decks like this that they're working on and putting out webinars and content, but there is a recognition that there's more work that needs to be done there as well. Ugo, this year there have been over 600 bills introduced targeting transgender people. Many of these bills are specifically targeting the care that transgender people receive. And much of what we've seen, just the regular everyday person in society, is around harm to transgender people on the one side versus people on the affirming care side, which suggests that the care that transgender people receive is the best medical care available. Can you speak to what this disconnect really is from a medical professional's perspective? You know, I cannot speak necessarily to that disconnect. I can speak, though, to the fact that, that we live in an increasingly polarized society right now where a lot is being looked at through the lens of anti-wokeism, if that is a term that we can embrace. And it is a shame because, quite frankly, when you have a human being in front of you and you have all the humanity and the empathy on really trying to take care of that person, how they identify probably is not the sort of the preeminent thing in your mind. 
if I have a trans member of the trans community in front of me with a laceration, my goal as a physician is to repair that laceration, notwithstanding what is going on with their gender. So I think it is an increasing polarized society. And unfortunately, sometimes things are looked at that lens. When folks come to the emergency department to expect care, we as medical professionals have the obligation to treat them. And part of that treatment is trying to also understand what the communities that there are. And so there's work, as we've just talked about earlier, to try to build that awareness. As for the anti-wokeism, I think over time, as the pendulum continues to swing in one direction, we can only imagine and hope that the right thing will happen. After all, we are a profession of taking care of people, and we should take care of all people. Recently, in my state of Arizona, and it in my city, uh, our College of Nursing was under attack because a student posted images taken from a class on libs of TikTok, which caused the university to be harassed by people who kind of did the bidding of libs of TikTok. And what we're seeing is institutions like this who are now at the center of harassment because of online rhetoric against teaching gender-affirming care. We are seeing institutions kind of roll back on how they teach medical professionals on how to provide sufficient and caring care, healthcare. What are you seeing medical institutions do to combat that? Or are they even aware that this is happening? So, yes. So medical institutions, medical health systems are trying to do the right thing. um, And they are creating the awareness. They are working to educate the communities and medical professionals who are engaged in care. They are trying to reach out to the communities to get their voice as well. And those in the gender diverse communities are being sought after to provide their input on how they should be taken care of. It is an obligation. We are in the business of taking care of people. And I think uh, the medical health systems are doing likewise. Now, as for what happens with social media and the pressures that they lend to bear on institutions, specifically health systems, you know, I, we live in increasing polarizing. People use social media, the trolls and social media use it as a, a tool to share ideas and ideologies that may go counter to what we as medical professionals believe. I think that what happens is we just have to sometimes let that go. And I think health systems are recognizing that we can choose not to listen to the rhetoric that the trolls are putting out there. And we have to understand our first and foremost obligation is to that patient in front of you. And so, yes, you have to do the right thing. And if someone is seeking care, you have to do your best to sort of manage that person. And I think health systems recognize that. So what advice do you have for transgender patients and their families who come to the emergency department to improve these interactions and their outcomes? Great question. So it has to be a bilateral approach to it. In other words, parents of transgender uh, patients and transgender patients themselves there has to be this awareness on their part that the community at large still, there's some misperception, there's some lack of awareness. And so, yes, you have to sort of, when you go into an open mind, you really have to go with the idea of also trying to educate, trying to tell people what your preferred pronoun is, making sure that they understand what your preferences is, making sure that, you know, if you want a private room per se, you can ask for these, you know, you know, you know politely. I think it's important that there's got to be an awareness on the parents' part that there's going to be a sort of this awareness is not just from the health system down, but also from the community, from the community of transgender up. That's what we can expect. And I think that as communities of medical professionals continue to create this awareness, what we are doing is now building this into our EMRs, which is our electronic medical records, 
We are prompting patients to understand how they prefer to be identified. And once that is done, we're probably utilize sort of the, uh, whatever the pronoun they choose to, uh, to identify and, and, and speak with them. Uh, we're also identifying the need to be more sensitive to the care that's being provided, um, making sure that patients are being provided adequate environments for them to, if, to be undressed if they want to be done so, or if they want their care to be given by some provider who may be a discordant gender or a concordant gender. We're trying to make sure that the cultural humility is there to understand these issues and try to provide the best care that you can. So you indicated you were in Philly for this conference, which is hopefully going to be talking about diversity and inclusion and belonging within the medical profession. But specifically, what is occurring within your space to target the needs of medical providers to understand and become aware of how to interact with gender diverse communities? Are they bringing in gender diverse people? Are they talking with people who have practice with gender diverse people? What specifically is being done to ensure that the voices are not just cisgender heteronormative voices? So great question. Another great question. So we at ASEP, we actually have an ASEP council, which all the legislative issues that we address through um, the college, uh, things are brought up. And over the past couple of years, there's been a interest in transgender care. And so a resolution was actually formulated by the membership and brought up. The resolution was really dealing with how do we take care of the transgender community and how do we educate our members? And part of that is creating webinars and policy statements on the care of transgender community. And also really ASAP being at the forefront of bringing folks from the community and even medical professionals who themselves identify as gender diverse to wade into the conversation. So we've had webinars, we've had course descriptors on this in, in this specific issue. And so likewise, so my job is actually fairly easy because I have people in the community at large amongst the medical professionals who do this work. And they are the ones weighing in and writing the statements and the policy statements and making sure that we are moving in tandem with what our members, our members want. Our members simply say that they want to know more. And so we are really at the committee level. We're working to provide them that education uh, that they need to sort of go forward and treat their patients. I really love that because it is critical that you have members from the community actually involved when you're trying to create policy, when you're trying to create procedures, when you're trying to create education around serving certain marginalized communities that you have representation for those communities. And I'm going to take you up on that offer. You haven't made an offer. You haven't asked for anything. But I'm going to say to you, Ugo, you mm -hmm. should probably bring in parents, caregivers, and gender diverse people into some of these settings. Maybe even have a panel where you can actually have medical professionals talk to them about their experiences. Because what one of the things we found is storytelling is really critical to helping people truly understand. And so if you can get stories from members of those communities directly, it would probably help to inform the way they're served a, a lot better. So no question, just a statement. I thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, yes, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. I think that it is critical that we have members of the communities that we're dealing with uh, come in and be a part of the conversation. And that's what we do. When we have these panels together, we do get, we seek from members of the community who tell their story uh, to be part of the conversation. So, you know, that's one of the things that I, I personally will advocate for 
but as I mentioned also, we do have medical professionals who are the community who identify as gender diverse, and they're also telling their story on these panels, and they are the ones who are actually coming up and helping us with their content. How do we deliver the best care to the community? So it is, so I, I'm in total agreement with that, that concept and that idea. And I just want to say that I love hearing that there's a curiosity and a need to learn. And I think in all facets of our life that allows that openness allows us to do better and to be better as allies. And it's exciting to hear that the medical profession is in that space and wanting to hold that as part of their values to when it comes to learning how to provide better care. Yes, yes, yes. I, I am in total agreement. Too. I think that the fact that we have resolutions calling for understanding more how to take care of the transgender community is a win. I think that the fact that people are attending these sessions, are trying to learn about pronouns, are trying to learn about the hormonal therapy, are trying to just learn just anything, even folks who have not transitioned and sought surgical care. How do you imagine from the emergency medicine's point of view when they show up in your emergency department? Uh, these are things we're learning and we're learning collectively, but it's still, we got ways to go. I think that the community at large is trying and those who are very interested. And so it is really, really, really a positive move of the College of Emergency Physicians. So Ugo, I know we're kind of at the end of this segment, but I'm curious if you could give one piece of advice to medical practitioners who are interested in coming into emergency medicine and specifically looking to become more conversant in how to serve members of all communities, cis and gender diverse, what would you say to them? Remember that the person in front of you, regardless of their identity, is still a person and you still have to manage that patient regardless. And so attaining the cultural humility, and we talk about this across the spectrum, even when you're taking care of patients who may not look like you, patients who are of a different gender than you, patients who may be of a different sexual orientation or maybe disabled. Uh, if we talk about the totality of the diversity of patients coming into your emergency department, the bottom line is still, that's a person in front of you and you have to take care of them. So for medical professionals, medical students who are looking into this space, always keep that mantra in the back of your mind ethically, you know, take care of the person in front of you, you know, do, do no harm, do the best that you can. And I think that that's what's gonna run the day. And it's a process you also learn. We, we may not get it right the first time. We may mispronounce person. We may actually not understand the cultural nuance of it, but it's okay. You know, expose yourself to that. Take it. Apologize if you are deemed insensitive and do your best. Be empathetic to the person standing in front of you. You're still, again, a human being. I love this. <laughs> so, Doc, thank you so much. Unlike the first time, this seems to have been a technologically successful conversation. We are always, always happy to have you on our show. We will probably invite you back, notwithstanding the fact that you weren't really the best guest, but we're probably going to invite you back so that you can do better, so you can educate us some more. Okay. Hugo, you were an incredible guest. Don't listen to Stephen. Yes, yes. I, I have not listened to Stephen in over 30 years, so nothing has changed. So <laughs> That's great. So, but thanks for having me. And yes, I am. Um, if you invite me back, I'm happy to come back and chat with you. Absolutely. Enjoy your conference. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, 
Who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Delaware State Representative Eric Morrison. State Representative Morrison introduced a bill in Delaware's House of Representatives to eliminate the gay and trans panic defense in any criminal prosecution. Morrison, a gay man and the chief sponsor of the bill in the House, was joined by Senator Sarah McBride, a transgender woman, as the primary sponsor in the Senate. Delaware is the 17th state, including the District of Columbia, to eliminate trans panic as a defense, recognizing that it's steeped in homophobia, transphobia, and stigmatizes members of those communities. This is why Representative Eric Morrison is our ally of the week. Congratulations to Representative Morrison. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week has to go to Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Listen to this clip. I have to be very clear about this. Transgenderism, especially in kids, is a mental health disorder. We have to acknowledge the truth of that for what it is. Parents have the right to know. The very people who say that this increases the risk of suicide are also the ones saying that parents don't have the right to know about that increased risk of suicide. And I'm sorry, it is not compassionate to affirm a kid's confusion. That is not compassion, that is cruelty. I met two young women, Chloe and Katie, early in this campaign, who are in their 20s, now regret getting double mastectomies and a hysterectomy. One of them will never have children. And the fact that we allowed that to happen in this country is barbaric. So I will ban genital mutilation or chemical castration. Okay, wanted- in the second Republican presidential debate, he said that transgender children have mental disorders and that affirming a child's gender was cruel. He tried to conflate parental notification clauses and suicidality. He's so full of shit. And that's why Vivek Ramaswamy is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Hugo Zenfall, for spending time with us today. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for always keeping things interesting. Thanks, Stephen. I think I can safely say that I couldn't do this without you, and we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, follow, subscribe, and do all the things you need to do to keep up with us on the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye! If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.